And now, here's your host, Alessandra Torresani. David Haggerty, it's your birthday. I'm oh, not going to no. sing again because that was really embarrassing and I obviously don't have a voice, but I'm going to pretend like I do because if I have a fancy microphone, it makes me seem like it. We're so lucky you are with us on your birthday. Uh, big I things know. are happening. This is going to be a wild and crazy episode where we've wanted to discuss this for a very long time. We've kind of tapped into it a little bit, but... This is truly your specialty and your special skill and kind of what you, you know, I don't know, correct me if I'm wrong, maybe this is what you would say is your lifelong dream kind of a situation, like your lifelong like mission in this universe and it's all about addiction. I have many a hot takes, so this will be fun. Like, this is going to be a hot not- episode. <laughs> I, I like find if I mean like I am not qualified to talk about most of the things that we talk about. Yeah, but that's but, the whole point. It's all well, about yeah, storytelling. Like, like you know what I mean. Like I kind of know what I'm talking about. Right. I'm enough to be dangerous, but like Ooh, here danger. you finally. This is like the one thing that I can be like. No, I have a degree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> You're like ah, hello. Yes, yes. I have something um, going on. <laughs> Yes, I, I can do this one. I think I should be able to do this one. If I stumble and fall here, like this is, I'm going down like a <laughs> sinking ship. <laughs> but this is kind of how, you know, just kind of a little quick refresh. People who have been listening to Emotional Support, who have been supporting Beauty in the Brain, know that we met at a conference um, and and we shared stories about living with bipolar disorder. And that is how this all started. I live with bipolar disorder one. You live with bipolar disorder two. Uh, That is the number one, the number two. It's complicated. I still don't understand, but just go with it. (laughs) A little different. Roman numerals, not alphanumerics either. Yes, yes, yes. It's very strange. Um, But what... (laughs) What I would say is you were talking so much about fixing your own brain. And I think that that's what drove me to be like, oh, my God, I need to talk to David and need him in my life all the time. Because you straight up told me, oh, no, you know, I live with all these issues. I've, you know, had ups and downs. And I'm truly testing my own brain. And I thought that was the craziest thing I've ever heard in my life in the best possible way. And then you started to get into addiction and how, you know, the brain, why are we addicted to things? Why are some people, you know, addicted to alcohol? You know, why is it a disease? It literally is a disease. Um, And people don't understand. I had a whole conversation with someone um, on the podcast a few episodes ago that I interviewed that's going to come out where we were talking about alcoholism. And then, you know, he said, you know, so many people just say, why can't you just stop? Why can't you just not have that next drink? Well, because it's a disease. Um, So tell us a little bit about the whole addiction process and what, you know, get us the nitty and gritty, get into it. Bring all of the like sassiness (laughs) out today. It's going to be a hot episode. Um, Okay. Well, there's like 15 things in that intro that I'll just start spiraling. Go for it. I mean, I think that like we met at this conference I would like to think I gave a very compelling talk at like 8 a.m. Yes. I was very tired. I was exhausted. Um, Yes. 
but I, I, this is like, I, this is how I catch people. Like it, it's a little bit of like flash and magic and spoken mirrors, but like, I think it was this like <laughs> without diving into like my lived experience here, but like, you know, like I am a very empirically based thinker and right. doer. Like uh-huh. I like to collect data, analyze that data, and then like use that to make the next decision. Like I am a living IBM commercial that you watched during golf on Sunday. Like, oh my God, that is like, the <laughs> best, sexiest description. David Haggerty. You know, it's like all the old IBM white dudes who like run companies and they're like, what kind of ads are we going to run for these people? And it's like <laughs> IBM Watson Cloud, like use data analytics to like make your next business decision. This is me in real life about everything. So right. I was like, I'd always been the sort of like in empirically based thinker and like emotions really weren't my thing right great at math great at science can memorize facts have a photographic memory and then I was like oh I feel weird and I had oh, no right. idea what to do with it I had no idea how to quantify it or quantit like even if it was like qualitative descriptions of my emotion I just didn't have the vocabulary right. of all of these things and I think that that inability that struggle that unknown about what was going on like drove me to be like hey i need to figure this out right and like the toolkit that i'm comfortable with using most of the time is like let me go and study this and like collect the facts and like orient myself to what everybody else thinks to like find a baseline and a framework and then from there once I like sort of have a general idea, then I can start like toying with things sure. and see how stuff really works. Sure. Like, yeah. So I think that, you know, from that standpoint of like trying to figure out my own issues, like I would like to tell everyone I have not figured them out. Like this is not me being, <laughs> you know what I mean? This I'm isn't like I you. hacked my brain TED yeah. talk and you can too. I have no solutions for right. you at the current right. state of, but it was like this, this, it was this approach. And I think that that approach resonates with other people too, because like much of the content we consume, much of the the way that we conceptualize what's going on in the world around mental health addiction, like all these things, you know, like don't make me go on the spiral of mental health world, mental health awareness day was a few days ago. And like everything that I consumed, like everything that I saw was was either a product Right. Yeah, but it was like all this way of like, here's a product, here's a, a resource, here's an advertisement to like, let me train your brain how to think about these problems. Right. So like, that, that's right. what I dove into. I there's stuff that I like about it. There's stuff that I don't like about it. We can go there if you want to. Like, no, I would I love what. That, like, so what is something that you do <laughs> like about it? Well, I think awareness was the thing that got me to the the place that I am now. Right. If it wasn't for mental health awareness work, like advocacy, nonprofits, like these sorts of things, um, I don't think that I would ever have like run down the scientific, neurobiological, neuroscience stuff that I'm doing. Because so you would it was like because important. you were inspired. You were inspired. Yeah, that was by like the, the catch thing. Right. It was like, right. yo, like do this. And like, there will be this world that like you can find out about. And right. I think that, so there's like a, the hook, line and sinker thing of like, what's going on, you know, Instagram posts, like ad buys, like all these things are like super important yeah. because a large majority of the people just don't know what's out there. Yeah. Right. And then like a lot of my critique, I feel like is the, like I've had years now to like mm-hmm. consume and understand and like place these things in my like web of knowledge in yeah. my brain. And I have like very specific pinpoint critiques about how we do this work. 
but I think it really is interesting because it's like, I feel like I complain or like, you know, bitch and moan about this kind of stuff. Yeah. And like for people who aren't in it are like, well, I don't understand why that's a big deal. And then for the people who are in it, they like also they see They understand so why like, it's frustrating. Yeah, yeah. Right, mm-hmm. right, right. So, so it's like- What would be something that would be like, something that you would want to change about um, the mental I, health I world? could- if I could ban the use of the words dopamine and serotonin mm. in non-academic Why? vernacular, I would do it in a heartbeat. Why? Because we don't know. I don't know what it does. What do you mean you don't know what it does? We need help. <laughs> like, uh, 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 this is what I'm saying. So, like, you know what I, I feel? You're like just the, saying there's the, no there specific, was, like, like. Well, I mean, like, here's, we'll do the rundown. So we'll get run into it down, the, the, girl, the run it down. stuff. So, like. The idea of, so we'll go all the way back. This was the the thing. I don't want to correct you. This is your podcast. No, you I don't want to. You want. Uh, this is what this <laughs> this is about. It is about us getting real. Alcoholism, alcohol use disorder, which is now the official terminology. Okay. And substance use disorder. It's AUD not a disease. and SUD. It's not a disease. So I fucked up. Bio, but no, but this is, we could say, we but want is, it to be, no, but I want, want it learn. to be a disease so bad. Right. A disease is something that you can measure. And then there are some threshold. So the example that I always use is high blood pressure. Okay. You can strap a cuff on your arm. Right. You can get a numeric reading, what your blood pressure is. And then some population that falls over some threshold, some set point. Right. 180 something right for that top number you have high cholesterol uh-huh. or high blood pressure which is a disease right. and if you fall below that number you are you don't have a disease there's like a quantifiable measurable thing so you're saying from a mathematical a point of view people. right so you are measuring what a in quote out of quote yeah. disease is based on is. a mathematical issue to be a problem, to get a cancer right. to get a cancer diagnosis, your white cell count in your blood must be below a certain threshold. Right. Like I, you could do these for diseases. Try and apply that framework to to alcohol use disorder. Well, I don't know. That's why I ask you: like, Is there a way to measure the brain? Measure it. Mm. Yeah, like you can't measure it. Nobody knows. So, like, it is a disorder. It is not a disease. And mm. to transition from disorder to disease, you must find what we call like biomarkers right? or like some sort of quantifiable metric that we can use at scale in the population where you could walk into a clinic, you could do some sort of blood test or some sort of like survey that right. like with a very robust sensitivity and specificity. And I like use those words as like very statistically defined right. words can give you a true positive that you have this disease and it just doesn't exist yet for substance use disorder for for alcohol use disorder for autism for all of these things such as bipolar disorder. disorder because it's you can't measure right because we don't have the biological right. basis for it yet wow so because we don't have the biological basis what really drives me nuts is when neuroscientists or other people like lend their like, oh, I'm smart, I have a degree. Let me validate the use of bleeding edge brain research neuroscience to promote ads or products that aren't based in scientific fact. Such as for, what? So like for like, it's still ongoing. 
you know, for like many a years, a couple of decades, I don't know, let's put a start date on it. Let's call it the 50s. Right. Okay. We started to realize that the neurons, the things in your brains right. release chemicals, which then cross some space in the brain from one cell to the other, right. the synapse from presynapse to postsynapse. Right. And then there's receptors that bind those chemicals, which cause a change in electrical activity in those neurons, which sends an action potential, which causes more chemical release. Right. The electrochemical hypothesis of how the brain works. Pretty good. And then we start figuring out what those chemicals are. Glutamate, glutamine, dopamine, serotonin, acetylcholine, all of these different things that we can actually isolate and be like, these are the molecules that do the, the transfer of the chemical step. And then we started saying, okay, well, let's just like look at the bulk of the brain and see what these levels of these chemicals are. And for people and with, with addiction issues, those were out of balance with people who didn't have addiction mm. issues. So then the entire hypothesis was, well, let's just increase the amount of serotonin in the brain and people who are depressed won't be depressed anymore. Right. And we tried that with Prozac and we tried that with all these other drugs and it doesn't work and it's fucking stupid and we just right. need to give it up. Right. Like, I'm sure there will be people that show me fringe cases that are academics that like prove that I'm wrong, but like with broad strokes, right, 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 right. This idea that there is a chemical imbalance in your brain and we must fix it. And that will be the cure all is like hilarious to me and products or companies that try and sell like nootropics or like mm. these chemical, like, like oh, take this, it has a bunch of glutathiamine in it. Like right. it will make you feel better. Like these active compounds that may or may not even actually end up in your brain if you take them in gummy form. Right, 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 right. <laughs> right, it's not. <laughs> and to like solve your problem. And like, look, most of them are harmless. Absolutely harmless. Great marketing, great advertising. Sure. Starts a great conversation about what's sure. going on. But what it does is it perpetuates this idea that it's a chemical imbalance and this is the issue. So let me ask you a question. Drives so, me nuts. <laughs> drives David <laughs> nuts. So I, you know, I, I do not live with addiction mm -hmm. issues. I, I have an addictive personality. Yeah. I'm very aware that if I started drinking and got into that pattern, it would be very easy for me to fall into to a constant yeah, pattern. Totally mm -hmm. aware of it. See it family. Got it. Um, but that's not an issue. At, that's not yeah. my, my number one issue at the moment. Um, give it a moment, but maybe, maybe I'll get there right now. No, I'll, we'll circle back. So a lot of conversations I've been having with friends. Okay. Not part of the pod, strictly friends. Yeah. People that, you know, are trying to find not even the quick fix, but are trying to, mm -hmm. uh, you know, enlighten themselves and be the bigger person and, you know, get to that next level of theta. You know, I believe yeah. in transcendental meditation. That's my own thing. But a lot of people I've been talking to are now doing um, microdosing of mushrooms. They're doing ketamine therapy. They're doing ayahuasca journeys. They're doing mm -hmm. all of these mind-altering drugs that open, you know, according according to them, and they're not scientists, and I'm not a scientist, and I'm probably butchering what they said, but it's, you know, oh, it <laughs> opens, you know, the, the serotonin in the brain, and it enlightens this childlike part of your brain that you can't tap into to heal the trauma, all this stuff. 
Now, as my husband says, right, Sturgis, your favorite person. Listen, if it works for you, it works for you. I wish it worked for for me. You know what I mean? Like, whatever works for you, fucking go straight ahead and, like, go for it. But do these things actually work? Or is it just a numbing mechanism? Is it just a... work. Okay. Does it actually... Let's use an example, okay? Someone had a child trauma happen to them. Okay, uh, 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 some sort of trauma. I, I didn't get into specifics. They didn't tell me. Yeah, but yeah. something happened to them mm-hmm. in their childhood, whether it was sexual, whether it was a physical abuse, whether it was an emotional abuse. And they claim that going on, you know, their ketamine treatment, ketamine, yeah. mm-hmm. that that it they somehow tapped into their brain, went back and hey, it worked for them because I see a change. But is that something that actually is a quick fix is it something that you're tricking your mind by believing that is it actually the you know ketamine and microdosing of mushrooms that's actually doing something it's a mouthful but you know no I, I, like look like I, generalize it it doesn't have to be specific about yeah this is what I, i'm struggling with the generalization because to me in my brain ketamine therapy is over here and psilocybin's way at the other end and what's psilocybin what's psilocybin that is the active ingredient in magic mushrooms ah okay okay so they're complete opposite ends of the spectrum from a drug perspective so ketamine is a derivative of another drug that was found to be very useful right in, in clinical applications but we couldn't give to the general public because it was pcp okay so when we gave people PCP and and World War II tent hospitals after they had gotten shot or gotten gangrene, fantastic anesthetic. Uh, anesthetic, can okay. A, can give a bunch of it to humans. Right. And they won't overdose. With so ketamine, like if you're really? Thinking, if you're thinking of like wartime medicine, like I am, I have been shot and there I have no hospital near me and I need to numb someone so I can save their life. Ketamine and PCP, great drugs to use. Great. Interesting. Fascinating. Okay. As an antidepressant, this is where we get into the fun part. Right. At large doses, ketamine works as an anesthetic. At suboptimal doses from the anesthetic, it technically works as a hallucinogen or antidepressant. Okay. The repeated effects of ketamine over time will change your brain. Right. Chemistry. We call it plasticity, like the ability for something to be plastic can be changed over time. It will change the plasticity of your brain. It binds NMDA receptors. It does stuff to glutamate. Like we don't have to go into the neuroscience of it, but like I can show you a measurable change somewhere in the brain. Right. What it does is it alters those receptors that bind the chemicals that cause electrical activity is the change in the electrical activity through very specific brain patterns and like circuitry in your brains over time. Mm -hmm. It will do something to that. What we're trying to do is correlate those changes from repeated ketamine use over time to self-report data from humans that are doing the ketamine trials themselves and say, do you feel better? Mm. So like I can measure the effect of ketamine on the brain and then I can ask a human who's had those ketamine induced changes, do you feel better? And if there's a positive correlation between those two groupings, like you have a therapy. Right, right. Repeated ketamine use over time will destroy your liver and kidneys. Really? Like you will just die. So it's very interesting. 
my big concern is that in an acute dose, so like basically one IV infusion of ketamine or like one nasal spray, the nasal spray is what it, it hit the market as is this ketamine. Oh, really? Okay. Is it may be good for acute usage. Could it be addicting? But yes. Because it must the, feel amazing to be like in Anybody this... who has a degree in chemistry can take a bottle of nasal spray of ketamine and turn it into street drug with like in a bathtub. I mean, I could do it in 20 minutes. What do you mean in a bathtub? I'm not going to tell you how. No, please but... don't tell us how to do that. <laughs> the abuse liability of pushing this much ketamine onto the street is kind of an interesting oh, other so public that's health another question. Right, right, right. Okay. And like, I'm not trying to like stir the fire and like be no, spicy about it. Like, no. It will probably be less than what I suggest it may be, but it's something we need to talk about that we haven't really talked about. And I think that um, that's what's scary, right? Is people aren't talking about it. And someone yeah. like me that's actually very well, people scared aren't of drugs. enough to talk about it. True, but I'm also they someone- They don't know the mechanism. They don't know any of these things. So like, there's, there's reasons why it doesn't get- and you think of ketamine, I thought like ketamine, you know, was a party drug, like something that people like get like totally well, like it messed up on. It's a huge party you know. drug in China. Like Hong Kong really? is, is the number one party drug. So that's where things get confusing when people are doing ketamine treatments. Yeah. You're just like, I get it. Go you for dose it. it right. You know, right. Yeah. But it's, it makes you feel great. And so is there an addiction Look, part? I would love to microdose cocaine. <laughs> to feel better it would probably work the it crash is work. the issue and the prolonged use is the issue oh, so that's, a great, wait, do... that's an amazing point that you brought up so with the ketamine now i've never done cocaine before full disclosure i was like a nerd <laughs> i was a loser like i totally wish i did all the drugs and i didn't um and now i'm just like an old lady so here's my question with the ketamine does it drop the serotonin level afterwards? Like how everyone's like, when you're done with, with doing coke, like a lot of people get pissed off at the end. So like, this is the thing. All right, we're going to have fun with this. We're going to have so know, much fun. I don't know the actual biological interactors of ketamine. So don't quote me on what it does to dopamine or serotonin. I know that there are neurons that co-release dopamine and glutamate together. So there might be some function there. I have no idea what it's doing to serotonin. It'll probably do something in the nucleus accumbens core, which is like a dopamine-related reward pathway in the brain. Mm -hmm. I'm just like rambling about neuroscience. Nobody has any idea what I'm talking about. Right <laughs> no, we're, but this is this is important for us okay, to learn. Okay, all right, let's bring it back to reality. So ketamine, it, it messes with that receptor. There's two types of receptors. There's AMPA and there's NMDA. NMDA receptors are always on. Okay. Always. I'm they always to glutamate, on. Always on. NMDA receptors only turn on at specific sort of settings in the brain. You okay. must have a lot of brain electrical or chemo, chemical electrical activity in the brain for NMDA receptors to come online. Right, okay. You can then get biological processes that add more or less of those receptors due to drug mm -hmm. while you're actively taking the drug. And then when you stop taking the drug, those receptors can then again upregulate or downregulate right. as like the body tries to return to some sort of homeostasis level. Gotcha. The long-term effects of ketamine on that receptor sort of density, how much you have in right. a neuron at any given time, homeostasis is like wildly understudied. We so it's like know. we don't know what is going on. Yeah, it, like if you put a gun to my head, if you put a gun to the head to the people who got ketamine 
through the FDA and ask them these questions, they do not know the answer. So that's so terrifying. We're studying it still. Right. And it may like, be a game wrong. changer. It's it may useful. be a life changer. Right. But it's like, it's we useful. need to there know There might be more. some chemical analog of ketamine. Like there might be something going on, but like the, the amount of analytical chemistry followed by ADME, which is an acronym for like what we do for drug trialing, uh-huh. like for human utility studies, for animal, you know, reward changes for like there's so much we could do right if we had a bigger budget to do research with we could do these things right there seems to be more and more public support for developing these these new things right so like if you're somebody who's not a scientist you could call your congress people and say hey we should probably increase the nih budget and then i could give you some answers right but like i don't know nobody knows i want to switch gears because ketamine just like makes me crazy can we talk mushroom we can talk mushrooms. There are other drugs like ketamine that have failed in the past that you haven't heard. Merck had a compound called MK801 that was supposed to be what ketamine is today, maybe 20 years ago. And, and what it, it what did that mean? Like it meant opening the receptors in the brain and making yeah, you it, like it kind of get that healing the trauma. treatment idea that it gotcha. could treat depression in the same sort of ways or mechanisms that, gotcha. that biologically the ketamine could do. It failed. It didn't get through. And the why FDA. did it fail? What was what was the failure? For failing? some utility usages, I don't remember exactly what the adverse events were. I want to say, and this is the the issue with ketamine as well. At a high enough dose for a long enough time, it can induce seizures. Mm. Um, so there are drugs like ketamine that aren't necessarily aiming to treat depression or addiction. Right. The like they all sort of have seizure issues after some amount of time. Okay. Um, glutamate is the most widely available excitatory neurotransmitter in your brain. If you mess with that signal, you can do a lot of harm really, really fast. Gotcha. Let's do the let's do the fun magic yeah. mushroom stuff. Yeah. This is where I get excited. Right. Mushrooms have the ability to do acute things to neurons that don't cause them to sort of go out of whack for a long period of and time. And do you think because it and, comes from the ground and it's natural and it's Mother Earth? No, 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 no. Uh, yes, I mean, yes, there are, there is, there is a because you know, woo me believes in that. <laughs> you know, there is an evolutionary hypothesis behind why psilocybin works. Mm. If you watch Fantastic Fungi, which you should, okay, Netflix doc. Do you know I'm allergic to mushrooms, doc. so I'm I wasn't excited about mm, that doc. I love mushrooms. So, do you know that that <laughs> Sturgis's mother is the president of the uh, Boston Mushroom Club? Uh huh. That's she amazing. hosts like mushroom events where they I go through mushrooms. their backyard and like yeah. go through yeah. the forest and look for mushrooms. Yep. Um, Royalty. It's that's so cool. <laughs> it's so I, cool. Can we hang out with her. Can I have her? You, oh my God. Trish, <laughs> Trish would be your favorite person ever. Amazing. Um, okay. Where was I? Uh, uh, mushrooms do stuff to neurons in the same way that ketamine does stuff to neurons, but in a very different way that I also don't know how to describe to you. Okay. Um, the interesting <laughs> <Try>. thing. <laughs> The interesting thing about mushrooms is they are one of the few compounds that we know of that is naturally occurring that induced adult neurogenesis. What does that mean? When you are born, you have a bunch of neurons in your brain. Okay. The process of going from child to adult is strengthening some of those neuron synapses and actually getting rid of some of those synapses. 
Okay. You're born with too many. You will delete some of them. Some neurons in your brain will die. That is very normal. Why would we be born with too many though? When you're left, it's just like a weird evolutionary oh, God, thing. It's so cells confusing. will get into the developmental God. of it later. <laughs> God. Um, um, once those cells die, mm -hmm. they do not grow back. You're, you are born and you so go you're born brilliant process. and then you get continually <laughs> I don't know dumber if children are brilliant. but yeah so what i'm saying is like me right now in my right. brain there are n amount of neurons right i'm not growing anymore if i have an injury to my brain they will not grow back right okay if you like cut your skin more cells grow to like right. put to your heal skin it. back that right. doesn't work in your brain this is why people with spinal cord injuries can't get better like the holy grail is figuring out how to make neurons regrow. If mm -hmm. I like cut a neuron in the middle with a pair of scissors, can I get it to grow back together? Right. And we haven't figured that out yet. Haven't figured it out yet. Also, just like if you lose some neurons, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's disease, et cetera, like those neurons get sick and die. Can we grow more? And does that solve the problem? Well, it's I like you know. said before, like Parkinson's, if we mm -hmm. could figure out Parkinson's, we could figure yeah. out every single mental health uh, illness that's going yeah. on, mm -hmm. right? So there's there's this idea behind psilocybin that it is one of the few naturally occurring compounds that stimulates in the what we call a growth factor. If you put it next to cells, it will make them grow. It makes neurons grow. There's an entire evolutionary mushrooms. hypothesis that yeah, the psilocybin in the mushrooms it makes your brain neurons regenerate and grow. So More it's the only the thing that, that makes it regenerate. Why is this not, not the, the only thing? thing? But like naturally occurring, most popular compound. So is this something that's 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 you know given in a in quote unquote microdose form to someone with Parkinson's or dementia? The idea behind microdosing mushrooms is that it will give you the therapeutic benefits of psilocybin without making you high. It's like doing enough to get the good stuff from psilocybin without the bad stuff, the bad stuff being like seeing the walls breathe. So, for example, with Parkinson's, right, I, I have a lot of people in my life mm -hmm. who who live with Parkinson's and, and family members and and so forth on and on and on. OK, um, it's it's interesting because, you know, the, the depression comes on one of my yeah. mom's. Um, best friends her her partner um had parkinson's and and is no longer with us but had a wonderful wonderful life and it was the depression and the anger which was the most shocking behavior of all when this was such a happy person right and it was uncontrollable because it was the disease yeah. of parkinson's that was taking over so now with the microdose since people have been using it for an antidepressant, I know a lot of friends my age that are using it instead yeah. of being on Prozac and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, they're microdosing every morning. Now, would you recommend that for someone with Parkinson's for the antidepressant part as well? I don't, I don't know. I'm not I mean, saying recommend, is but is it some, <laughs> is it a conversation that someone can have with their real doctor, not just a woo doctor? It, I think that it should be. I don't think that mushrooms are going to cure Parkinson's. I'm not saying they're going to cure, but would it help? Would it be a it great- It might help with the symptomology. But the issue with Parkinson's, any neurodegenerative disease is like, you're going to lose neurons faster than you can heal them or regrow them. Mm -hmm. So this is just prolonging the inevitable mm -hmm. currently. But 
for somebody who has a, an addiction problem or for somebody who has anxiety, depression, et cetera, the way that I like to, so then we're going to go general now. Yeah. So like we did ketamine. I ranted about some things that I yeah. like and don't like about ketamine. Psilocybin does acute effects on neurons, like broadly speaking, messes with a bunch of neurotransmitters and electrical activity. Um, there's a bunch of different types of receptors. Some moves ions, some are G protein coupled receptors, which cause signaling cascades and neurons to happen. Psilocybin does a bunch of stuff. Like we could just do an entire podcast for five seasons on what psilocybin Okay, does. we're doing psilocybin next time. <laughs> Remember that. What is happening with both of these drugs? I'll do the general thing now. Yeah, like yeah, stick yeah. those things in the same category. We're moving towards a world where we're realizing that modulating the synaptic plasticity of the brain mm -hmm. and the circuits that that plasticity work through mm -hmm. from one brain region to another, while through psilocybin, ketamine, or through meditation, intensive talk therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, dialectical behavioral therapy, all of these things, whether it's drug you take or or talk that you do to a right. therapist, themselves can induce synaptic plasticity changes in the brain. It's so like me going and talking to my therapist rewires my brain. Right. Can we add them together mm. and get better clinical outcomes? Like if you enroll in the psilocybin treatment clinical trial that's going on run out of Johns Hopkins right now. Uh -huh. You cannot just take psilocybin. Like you get psilocybin pills in a very controlled environment while you do talk therapy and like have a spiritual guide with you while you do it. Right. Like it's right. not just microdosing mushrooms. That doesn't do anything. Right. Right. Like the idea is that you do these drugs, mushrooms, ketamine, NMDA, like all, all of these drugs that we're trialing that are like club drugs or psychedelics in a very closed environment with a therapist so you can talk about the trauma or the problems that while you're it's going on while your brain is altered right. in hopes that those alterations stick. Mm -hmm. And if we change the plasticity mm -hmm. of the brain, you might feel better. Right. We've gone from chemical imbalance hypothesis to circuit-based neuroscience, how do we alter that circuitry in a targeted manner to change behavior? Right, right, right. It's a complete paradigm shift. We're taking drugs from the 1950s and 60s, sometimes the 30s and 40s. Which is so wild that they existed then. from the old then. paradigm right. and dropping them in the new paradigm and crossing our fingers and hope it works. And how long does a trial like that have to go on for before there gets Depends an FDA approval? on mainly the politics behind it. No, truly, yeah. Um, but I mean, I'm all, any, I think everything's any, so confusing now, right? Because like we yeah, saw yeah, COVID, you know, drug. the COVID vaccine was, was approved, you know, overnight. And then other things, you're just like, these should have been yeah. approved by now. Why are they not being approved? Well, like, I mean, like the ketamine therapy, don't quote me on this. What is the number? The amount of patients that ketamine was in before it got FDA approval, I think is less than 15 people. What? What do you mean? We have dosed how many billions of people with the coronavirus vaccine before it went from 
emergency use to actual FDA approval. The number of people that got ketamine infusions before the drug got FDA approval, I think is less than 15. I at least know for phase one, phase two. and So it is approved by the FDA. FDA approval, less than 15 people. I got to look it up. I'm terrified. Wrong, but I know that like the original two studies, I think were in seven people. What? It's like the the number is so astronomically low. And it's just how hard is it? to do these things. And people didn't want to do it. Right. I mean, like Ronald Reagan gets up there and says like war on drugs, you know, like crack dealers are right. coming for your family. It's like really hard to do neuroscience with psychoactive drugs because for many years in this country, people were just like didn't want to buy it. They thought they were the devil. So do you think it's, it's the taken devil? It's more of a cultural reckoning. Right. I mean, I don't hear we'll get into personal opinion land here. I don't think that any drugs should be illegal. Right. I'm not like trying to be like a weird, like centrist, you know, like libertarian. The government is bad. We should have regulations around drugs. Like right. look what Oregon's done. I don't know what it, what has Oregon done. But I mean, like Oregon, like legalizes psilocybin, like they legalize. Oh, really? Like, marijuana. Like they do all these things. And like everyone is like, oh, overdose rates are going to go through the roof. And like they don't. Right. So it's like there's so a lot of fear around this. Still. It's it's always fear. That's everything's fear based. I swear. But here's another question mm-hmm. for you. Okay, so now we're bringing up marijuana, right? Yeah. So you know, I have people in my life that swear by smoking mm-hmm. weed to go to bed. Swear to that yeah. it's the only mm-hmm. thing that helps them with their depression, with their anxiety, with their stress. And I truly believe it. For me, it, it wouldn't work for me. But, but yeah, I'm like, no, you it. do you, boo, you go yeah. for it, right? Do you believe that there's an addiction? Is there an addiction aspect to marijuana? Because so many people are like, oh, no, 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 it's not addicting, okay. it's not addicting. But Here's they have the to have it every single day. Here's the thread. I'm glad you asked this question. Like ketamine, like psilocybin, there are receptors in your brain. You have endogenous cannabinoids, like the active ingredient in marijuana, THC is a, a cannabinoid. EAE and 2AG are the two compounds that float around in your brain that are endogenous endocannabinoids that bind receptors that train change how neurons in your brain fire right, and change your behavior. THC, Delta-8, Delta-9, CBD, all of these crazy drugs. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like the marketing behind weed is hilarious to me. Those are all exogenous, like things you take from outside the body and put in them to like hijack those receptors to get hot. It changes your brain state. It changes plasticity in your brain. So from the circuit-based neuroscience hypothesis of mental disorders, yeah, you 100% can do too many drugs, whether it's weed or not, change your brain chemistry. And from a measure of the changes in those plasticity markers that we're looking at, I could say, yeah, you're addicted to this compound. Physically, right. culturally, environmentally, are you addicted to it? Probably not. Right. But like if we're measuring changes in your brain right. as the definition to right. addiction, right. you can be addicted to marijuana. Wow. Is that your outward behavior? I don't know. Right. So right, like, this is where we're going. Like, I, you know, like we started this, like, let's talk about addiction. Yeah. Like I do, I do the alcohol stuff. That's right. like my That's your, your forte. Yes. We, we. Alcohol changes the brain in many ways. Mm-hmm. Not drinking alcohol after drinking it for a long time changes the brain in many ways. How so? 
again, we could do a whole podcast on this. But, give, give a but little like, like, No, but like I was saying, so like biologically speaking, drinking does stuff, not drinking does stuff. Oh, yeah, and it's like this homeostasis. Like there's some threshold set point. Alcohol makes it go like this and then not drinking makes it go like this. And we're like trying to find somewhere in the middle. You hear people who are abstinent from alcohol for 20 or 30 years still talk about craving alcohol. Mm-hmm. To me, that means that there is something in their brain in the neurocircuitry involved with alcohol use that is still broken. Mm. They have the cognitive and emotional tools, luck, awareness, yeah, overcome that impulse, which may mean that it's not as broken as somebody else who who doesn't have that cognitive control. We talk about alcohol addiction as the addiction cycle Uh with three distinct phases, binge acquisition or early intoxication, like the actual process of drinking a bunch of booze, the negative affect withdrawal stage of like, I have drank a bunch of booze and now I am coming down from the effects of doing that. And then the craving and reward stage of I need more of it Mm. and it just runs in a circle. Right. I focus on the binge intoxication part of it. How does the early changes drive the other two? Right. The withdrawal state and then the reward state. I need more of it to feel better again. And my hypothesis mainly revolves around if we can do preventative care or treatment or reverse changes associated with that initial binge stage, we can maybe get rid of the withdrawal and we can maybe get rid of the future craving stage. What you see with people who are are suffering from alcohol use disorder who don't drink anymore is that reward craving stage is just always on still. Hmm. Like, so why it's such a battle. Right. Can we do neuroscience that fixes the biological circuit-based changes so they don't feel that craving or reward anymore? So something that you would do to fix that when you say, could we do neuroscience what what does that mean does that mean some sort of brain stimulation does that mean a medication i would love brain stimulation i would love tms transmagnetic cranial stimulation they put a big old magnet next to your head to like use different you know polarity sequences and and basically electric fields from magnets through your brain to turn on and off your neurons um in a very targeted and specific way Mm. because the dopamine hypothesis didn't work Right. You know, like dopamine in a nutshell in neuroscience for many years was like, you like something, dopamine fires in your brain. Right, right. Cocaine is a dopamine uptake. Like you have dopamine sitting in your brain. Like if you turn off the uptake pump to get it out of your brain, yeah, yeah. Like back into your cells, yeah, then you just get more dopamine. Right. So like right. cocaine equals more dopamine equals reward and happiness. Like right. that was the entire, it's so wrong. It doesn't work that way. <laughs> so what is so like that's what I'm saying, that... but like this idea behind like you know like let's do some neuroscience to it. Like for people who struggle with alcohol reward or craving for alcohol, we thought that we would just be able to give them a drug that turned down dopamine and it didn't or like work. Turned up serotonin, like something along this line, and it didn't work. Right. So it's like going in and finding those specific changes in the brain that cause you to feel that reward sensation or like I have a craving, I need this and then turning them off. Right. One of my favorite things about all of addiction research is this 
phenomenon called sign tracking, which is why you shouldn't like show pictures of like needles and presentations. Like when you like talk to addicts, like the, the sight of a picture of cocaine to somebody who abused cocaine can cause that brain signature to reactivate, even though it isn't like real cocaine in front of them that triggers that craving. But I kind of understand that because I feel that way when you watch like a bipolar episode, right? Like when you watch a manic episode, doesn't it kind of make you have that feeling of like, oh, it sometimes feels feels really good. It sometimes feels really good to have a manic episode and let out that rage and that anger. I had to watch the first season of Homeland. Oh, I haven't seen it yet. Oh, because it's it's rough, huh? What's her name? Why am I Claire Danes. Claire Danes and part of it was like it was for like a media representation of mental health in like uh-huh. society class it's like a sociology class about medicine in America and watching that show watching her have a manic episode caused me to have one see like 100 percent. so convinced. I understand how it would be so hard for an addict to go and see something that they used but that's to what I'm right saying now. so it's like it's this idea of like there are environmental and social and cultural cues right that cause your brain to have some sort of activity like unique activity signature that then drives that feeling of craving and reward right right so this idea of like you have friends that say or you have family that just say i just can't stop why can't you stop yeah why because there is not something wrong but there is something stuck in your brain plasticity wise within those neural circuits that won't change. And if we can introduce new flexibility there through psilocybin, ketamine, cognitive behavioral therapy, TMS, EMDR, like all of these things that we're trying, right? maybe that will loosen up that grip and allow us to like massage those circuits back to where they should be from like a homeostatic, like middle of the road level and that will be the relief like that is my treatment paradigm of how we do this so like through that lens everything that i evaluate in the mental health world is is your product falling into that narrative Mm. it might not be harmful but like to come back to me bitching about gummies with glutathione (laughs) in them like does that do anything in this framework the answer is no like arguably no Mm -hmm. people will argue with me until they're blue in the face right but like, is it harmful? No. Should you take your daily vitamins? Yes. Like it falls in that spectrum right, somewhere. Right, right. But from my viewpoint as a neuroscientist trying to do circuit-based neuroscience to find the next generation of therapies and cures, those things don't do anything for me. Mm. And it drives me nuts. I understand that they do stuff for other people. Right. We need them. Right. They are useful. I will put my name behind them, but I will never blatantly market these things without the classifier of the way that we conceptualize these problems in society is very problematic and wrong. Right. And everybody should pay attention in high school biology. And these are the things that we should be teaching. And this is why (laughs) biology was important. But like you need to educate the public, like the next generation of people coming up that like these aren't diseases yet. They're disorders, but they have very real biological causes. Mm-hmm. And if we can understand the underlying biology behind them, we can target our therapies better. And really, with like a lot of statistical power and like medicine behind it, right. create transformative therapies to help these people that are suffering. 
that that like if you can bundle that up that was the reason like once i figured that out that i went from mental health awareness campaigns to being like i must do neuroscience this is how i fix it mm. like through doing neuroscience I like have that faith i can help that myself you are going to change the world <laughs> i'm just gonna say it maybe on a podcast but i think that it's gonna happen but i think that that is the like to go all the way back to the beginning here of like yeah i'm trying to fix my own brain like I'm doing it through trying to understand the framework and how we understand how your brain is supposed to work. Right. Evaluating what we've done in the past that hasn't worked very critically. Right. And think about new ways to test hypotheses about how the brain might work. Right. I right. don't know the answers. We're only dealing, you know, like I've gotten like three cards of the 52 in the deck of like, <laughs> how does this actually work? But like, I think that this theoretical framework of the biology interacts with the nature, interacts with the culture, interacts with past failures and drugs and like future therapeutic promise. Like you have to be able to put all of it together. You can't just put the blinders on and be like, I only care about this one single molecule in the brain. And right. this is the holy grail because you will just fall on your face. Right, right. Like it just won't work. We can't do no. science like that anymore. You used to be able to do it like that. We didn't know a lot back then. Well, and like, I think that things are changing and why. people need to be aware of the change. I'm really hoping that there is someone out there that enjoys it, right? That are beauty in the brain. But most importantly, someone that possibly has children that they're hearing these conversations. How exciting, how intriguing. I mean, you know, my favorite episodes are beauty in the brain because I get to learn so much about my own brain and other people's mm -hmm. brains. And there's something very sexy and interesting about it and fun and exciting and like the unknown that I hope it inspires someone to want to introduce their child to biology, to science, um, you know, to mathematics, to all of these really like things that, that aren't put in this sexy pedestal, if you will, you know, um, science is not sexy. Science we is very sexy. sexy. Okay. <laughs> because let me tell you, I was a math and science nerd and I love it more than anything. I had a really hard time in English. I had the hardest time in history. It just, it, in, in, in English and history was so painful for me. Math yeah. and science was so exciting to me. And so I just hope that our conversations, you know, you know, once a month, once every couple of months really just excites people to want to learn more and invest yeah. in your own brain. If this episode of me rambling about a bunch of stuff does anything, I hope it spurs some questions. Yes. Like it's tough to, to, I've given you my theoretical framework of like how the brain should work. Like I might be super wrong. Totally. We I, all may be super wrong. I, but I, but I like hope that that, that view, that, right. that, that different, what could be like a very different viewpoint of like how people think we go from brain controlling behavior to like addiction, mental illness, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's disease, like the, the symptoms of, you know, having a bunch of neurons in your brain die during Parkinson's and like people, you know, getting very angry, being very like emotionally unstable and inflexible, like these sorts of things, it's all connected. Right. So like, that's my hope is that people start to realize that these things are more connected than they think they are, piece the it together for themselves and start to ask better questions. Mm -hmm. 
not that their questions are bad, but like better questions and like this idea of like, can you synthesize this stuff and put it together on your own and then go out to people who know what they're talking about, who study this, who are on the front lines of it and like ask those questions because like, I'm not going to lie. Like I like remember talking to Ross, friend of the pod, friend, deep friend of the we pod. Were, when we were at this, you know, conference, conference that I spoke at, at like dinner about like what he was doing and like it was like a problem that he was having and like a running some like line of code he like mm -hmm. had the conceptual idea behind something that he was working on like couldn't get it to work in implementation and was like talking about like the process and how frustrating it was to him and like how he had to go from like philosophical theoretical framework to like writing specific lines of code right and like how he couldn't get two things to connect and that conversation and the questions that he asked me about it, like informed a grant that I wrote about stuff that I do in mice. You're kidding like, me. Like the questions, like the reason I like doing this and getting questions right. from the public is because they might ask a question about- that just sets it off. About something that's going on in their own personal experience or a friend or whatever, and about an experience they're having. And it might trigger something on my brain that goes, oh, that's a really good question. I don't have an answer for you but it's made me think of this way, this way, and this way to go into a lab and test it. Wow. And like, that's the innovation cycle right. that you need. Right. Because like, look, like I'll be the first person to be like hypercritical of scientists. Like it's a very enclosed world. It's very right. tough to get into. Right. It just becomes an echo chamber like any other part of the world that's closed off and hard to get into. Mm-hmm the ideas about how the brain should or shouldn't work mm -hmm. are perpetuated by a very small group of people who don't want to listen to any outside influence. Right. So like by doing this, I'm crowdsourcing what the everybody else right. thinks right. should. Right. And like, it's a way to innovate. And it's like, I hope that we get some questions. Like I come on here most of the time having absolutely no idea what I'm going to say, but like, it's like that process through which like you spur innovation. Like I think well, that's how this show is. I don't think that like people think people, we don't plan this, you know, we like, maybe we'll come up with a subject. Addiction was literally Addiction, the word, a word, <laughs> one word. Um, and that's how this spiraled into this whole conversation. I really thank you so much for coming on your birthday david and doing this and Thank i would you. love for I'm everyone to please and i'm not wise yeah you know you are <laughs> definitely old and wise now um but i would love for all of you to just write in if you do have a question because truly you know one word one question one sentence all of it is um really just it sets off a series of fortunate events and I can't wait to hear more. Um, David, what uh, what are you going to do for your birthday? Are you going to get wild? Absolutely not. <laughs> Love you.